Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. I'm Chad Hafley. I do work related to user experience and web design in academic libraries. And today we are talking about self-confidence. Mm-mm-mm. So, in particular, let's think about a time that self-confidence has played a large role in helping you do something. So, I'll start. When I was in Japan as a person in my early 20s, I was confident about a lot of things I should not have been confident about, uh, especially related to the world of hiking and doing wilderness trips. Nothing can go wrong there. That's the good thing. No, especially not when I don't speak the language and (laughs) when my cell phone is out of coverage. And even if it were in coverage, I could not explain to their 911 line where I was. You just scream a lot and hope they can find you. (laughs) So there was one day where I was in the area of Nikko, which is about an hour and a half north of Tokyo. My plan was to take a bus to a mountain, hike the mountain, get back down from the mountain just as it was getting dark, and then catch the bus further on and stay at a hot springs resort kind of in the well, what to me was the backwoods of Japan. And, uh, well, if you are planning hiking trips, the first step in your planning should not be to <laughs> get down from the mountain just as it is getting dark. You should... I'm, I'm taking notes here <laughs> for, for next time I end up hiking in Japan. <laughs> you should try to get down with at least an hour to spare. That way, when you inevitably get lost, uh, you, you are still safe. <clears throat> I, so... I'm hoping... Uh, I'm imagining this involved personal experience somehow, this revelation. Yeah, well, I I hiked up the mountain. It was called Mount Nantai, and it wasn't that bad. I got a lot of fog when I got to the top, which is the story of my life when I go hiking (laughs) in Japan. Oh, I'm finally at the top of the mountain. I'm going to see the greatest view of clouds. But on my way back, it was getting a lot darker quicker than I thought it would because of the fog and I was just it wasn't like a nice walkable level trail it was like these rock fields that you have to very carefully place your steps or else your foot would just go into the crevice and then your ankle would just be done but I was invincible and I made it back down to the bottom of the mountain in time uh, despite my lack of visibility and uh, I had no twisted ankles and I caught the bus to the hot spring town, Yumoto. And I didn't know exactly where the inn was that I had my reservation. I just thought I would follow the signs for it because that's what I had done in Tokyo. But I didn't realize that when you get further away from Tokyo, the signs aren't in English anymore. Uh Uh-oh. So by this time, it was well and, and truly dark and... I really had no way of figuring out where I was supposed to spend the night. But while I was staring helplessly at a map, a uh, nice Japanese couple ran into me, and I was able to explain to them where I wanted to go, and I uh, finally got there safe and sound. Did they speak English, or did you have to pantomime somehow? Oh, pantomime was involved heavily, but they spoke, they spoke more English than I did Japanese, so, <laughs> so that was helpful. 
So in general, that was a day that probably should not have been as successful as it was, but because I just didn't know any better, it was fine. And so today we can be here recording this podcast instead yes. of me rambling to myself somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any similar experiences, Chad, where confidence has helped you out? Uh, perhaps not that drastic, but, um, well, maybe one kind of drastic. I'll start with, start with the easy one or the less drastic one. I've done a lot of conference travel related to my job, which involves going to cities I've never been to before and navigating mass transit systems. And I now, if I compare myself now to when I first started figuring out mass transit systems in places even where I speak the language, uh, I was perhaps less than confident at first, but through repeated exposure and the knowledge that if I didn't figure it out, I would end up somewhere bad, probably. Uh <laughs> For motivation, perhaps, I now feel much more confident figuring it out. And I've noticed that... So I don't live in a city with a lot of mass transit. It's not like New York where everyone takes the subway or something like that. So most of the people I know are not super knowledgeable about mass transit. But in the situation I end up with one of them somewhere that does have mass transit, I appear to be more confident about it than they are most of the time. And secondarily, the perhaps more drastic example was a late-night trip through western Pennsylvania where I had flown into Pittsburgh, and because that was the closest airport to where I was going, was up in, I think it was Clarion, up in the northern part of the state. And I was going to stay in a hotel there that night and go to a, a conference related to work the next day. And I saw some friends in Pittsburgh and ended up getting a late start out of Pittsburgh at about 11 p.m. And, right. yeah, there was... Uh, construction traffic and this was about 2010 or so so i had a smartphone with gps but it wasn't a great one and it crapped out right as i ran into a closed bridge oh, along my no. route and i thought i remembered the map enough to figure it out and well i did i eventually made it but i ended up driving down like a gravel road through a farm i think it may have been like somebody's tractor access road <laughs> or something oh, like no. that and it was like pitch black and i was in a rental car i didn't know well and, like, a deer ran out, and then, like, this jeep came barreling at me in the other direction. It, it was... I was convinced I was going to die at one part. But <laughs> per, I guess my confidence went out in the end. I did not totally break down. I kept driving and eventually made it and then collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Funny how all our stories involve travel of some You're right. Sort. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> yeah, especially driving in Western PA. I feel like driving in the snow... Yeah. is something that you do before you realize how dangerous it is. And then by the time you realize how dangerous it is, you have enough experience to do it fine. <laughs> yeah, there's something deep about the human condition there. Uh, yes. Well, speaking of the human condition, uh, you can find the power of confidence in lots of examples from literature and pop culture. Going all the way back to the little engine that could, for oh, example. Oh, that's, that's a perfect one, yeah. I think I can, I think I can. And then he gets to the top of the mountain. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back. So if you remember Yoda training Luke and Dagobah, and Luke has crashed his spaceship into the swamp, and that makes everyone upset because that's where the snacks are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as part of Luke's training, Yoda asks Luke to lift the spaceship with the Force. He can't do it. He says, this is stupid. I hate you, Dad. And uh, while he's walking away, Yoda uses the Force to pull it out of the water effortlessly. It's a very powerful, well-written scene, going mm -hmm. back and watching it, especially considering that it involves a two-foot Muppet. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you put it that way. It's very well done. And then Luke says to Yoda, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. Implying that if Luke only believed, he could do anything with the Force. That that quote, that is why you fail. Did you ever play the Star Wars Super Nintendo games? Yes. <laughs> Wasn't that like anytime you died, Yoda would, would ramble on with that in the background? Well, yeah, that was the Empire Strikes Back Super Nintendo game. He would yep. say a few things. One was, that is why you fail. The other one is, do or do not, there is no try. Yes, yes, okay. Yep. <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. There may have been a third one. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do remember that very distinctly. I think I associate that game more strongly with that quote than I do the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then more recently, we have The Matrix, where if you remember when Neo goes into The Matrix and Morpheus is training him early in the movie, they're on the uh, skyscrapers, and Morpheus turns to Neo and says, free your mind, and then jumps from skyscraper to skyscraper. Neo tries it and eats the pavement again implying that if only you believed the right thing you could fly there is no spoon there is no spoon so what does the science have to say about that chad uh i'm betting i cannot jump between buildings <laughs> well have you tried no i suppose my self-confidence is not not high enough for that <laughs> So, in the education world, we have a term called self-efficacy. This is shorthand for perceived self-efficacy. Basically, it means how good you think you are at doing something. And the big name in this theory is Albert Bandura, who began publishing about it around 1977. One of his big articles was called Self-Efficacy Toward a Unifying Theory of Behavioral Change. So I love to read hard-to-understand quotes from ancient <laughs> educational texts. So here we, we need go. a little, like, segment music to introduce it. <laughs> it is hypothesized that expectations of personal efficacy determine whether coping behavior will be initiated, how much effort will be expended, and how long it will be sustained in the face of obstacles and aversive experiences. And since then, the research has mostly supported his hypothesis. Uh, for example, a 2010 article by Aaron Schmidt in the Journal of Applied Psychology said that countless empirical examinations have found self-efficacy to have positive effects on self-regulatory processes and outcomes, such as effort, persistence, goal level, and performance. So... In human terms, if you think you're good at something, you'll put in a lot of effort, you'll stick with it even if you fail a couple times, you'll set and manage your own goals, and just generally you'll do a lot better at the thing. Sounds pretty optimistic. It does sound pretty optimistic. Well, maybe these people were confident in their theories about confidence. <laughs> I wonder what their bad theories were before they got to the <laughs> They weren't confident about those. Right, no. <laughs> so... Bandura speculated that four things influence self-efficacy. Four things affect how a person thinks of their own ability. The first and the strongest one he called performance accomplishments. This is attempting a task and being successful at it. That's pretty obvious, right? If you do a thing and you end up being good at it, you're going to think that it's going to happen the same way in the future. So let's imagine you are a soccer coach and you're trying to get your team to feel more confident. 
If your team goes out and scores goals, they will be more confident that they can score goals. So self-reinforcing. Yeah, I guess you don't need a degree in educational psychology to figure that out. <laughs> uh, the next one is called vicarious experiences. So this means seeing people you identify with perform a task successfully. So not as strong as performance accomplishments, but let's say you're on the soccer team and you have a friend that you practice with regularly, you feel like you're both about the same skill level, and then you see him go out and score a goal during a game. You'll think, oh, this person who's like me did the thing successfully. I can probably do it too. Is the key factor there that it's not like a, a famous soccer player? It's someone you know? Yeah, it can't just be any person, right? I mean, the more you identify with a person, the more you will be inclined to think that you can do it too. You know, so if you have a, you know, a transfer student from some other school who is an all-star and you don't know them very well, and for all you know, they've practiced every day since they were five, and they go out and score a goal, you might think, well, that person just had a lot more practice, they have more raw talent, I, I, I can't do it like they can. You don't have so, the context, yeah. Don't have the context, yeah. Another way is through uh, verbal persuasion, which is just you tell someone they can do it. <laughs> so <laughs> this is another another brilliant insight in academic literature. <laughs> yes, and uh, this is not terribly effective according to the the literature. So I mean, as a coach, you can tell your team that they can all score goals, but doesn't mean that they believe they can do it. What about all those inspiring speeches and sports movies? Uh, well, that's a chance to pay John Williams to do your orchestral score, I think. <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> yeah, my coach always told us to give 110%, sometimes 120%, occasionally 115 And did you? I had trouble, you know, distinguishing. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried hard. <laughs> Operating on a different scale. And then the fourth factor that comes into play is uh, emotional arousal, which Bendura mentioned this in his original article, but other people seem not to have cared about it later in literature. But basically, if you're in a state of fear or anxiety, you'll be less likely to think that you'll be successful, just probably because your body is too busy devoting its processes to, you know, a fight or flight reflex than to being successful hmm. at the task. So if you're the coach and you tell your star player to score a goal or you're getting benched for the rest of the season, uh, maybe that person will be too worried to actually go out and, and score a goal. This has very interesting implications for my parenting style, by the way. <laughs> oh? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm constantly trying to tell myself not to use threats as a way of motivating my child. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. But... Uh, but now I see there's actual research to back it up. Uh, yeah, well, that's probably another episode we could <laughs> do entirely on a on positive and negative reinforcement. Um, so if we look at the video game applications of this theory, most modern games have a very gradual increase in difficulty so that you never feel like you're in danger of being unsuccessful. So... For example, in Papers, Please, we spend a lot of time praising it over its very gradual difficulty curve so that before you know it, you've gone from examining expiration dates on passports to cross-referencing five documents at the same time. 
So that slowly builds up those performance accomplishments. So you have a very high self-efficacy at the end of it. Even and then you, you don't entirely realize how you got there. Right, exactly. You've been successful at so many small points along the way that you're confident that you can do it in the future. Uh, World of Warcraft is another great example. Um, when you start World of Warcraft, your first task is something like go fight these bandits. And all you have to do is click your one special ability over and over again, and then you beat the bandits. <laughs> Ta-da! And Warcraft will build on those success experiences until you're doing something extremely complicated in a team of 25 people and you have a specialized role and you have 20 buttons to manage and, and so on. And while you're going through this, the video games will often also give you verbal persuasion. Um, you know, this person's giving you a quest, implying that they think you can do it, right? And they will praise you when you do a, a good job. Another instance that I came across recently was I played Farmville. Recently? <laughs> for the first time. It still exists? Yeah, uh, there was Farmville Tropical Edition. I had no idea. I decided I needed to play it for research purposes. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, and it was actually, now that I think about it, I'm wondering if it came out before or after Stardew Valley. Have you played Stardew Valley or I've heard not. of it? I've heard it's of an, it. It's an indie title where you start out in an office and you get a letter from your grandfather saying, come out to the countryside and start a farm and breathe the fresh air. And then you basically play a Harvest Moon clone mm -hmm. where you're planting vegetables and harvesting them and so on. And uh, and Farmville, at least the version I play, starts the same way. You start out behind a, a snowy window with a cup of coffee and you get a letter from a friend saying, come to a tropical island and help me fix up this hmm. dilapidated inn. And Sounds then you familiar. go. So... There, the game, for the first 20 minutes, is literally just click here, and then there's a, a little hand showing you exactly where to click, where exactly here is. <laughs> and then you, you click there, and then sparkles explode, and you get a thing over here, and your experience goes up, and you catch a crab, and you harvest pineapples, and it's all very gratifying. Just because you click somewhere, and you feel like you accomplished something, and so the game builds up this confidence in you that you're good at it. My favorite example of that taken to a logical extreme was a parody of that called Cow Clicker a few <laughs> okay. years ago. It was developed, it was a Facebook game developed by, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Ian Bogost, who's a fairly well-known video oh, game. Oh, I'm reading, I'm reading a book by him right now. Yeah, actually. well, Cow Clicker might come up in there. He created <laughs> okay. it as a semi-parody response to Farmville, where literally the whole game was there was a cow, and you could click on it like every six hours or something like that, and you got a point when you clicked on it, and then you had to wait six hours to come back and click on it again, and I played that game a lot. <laughs> Did you ever get upgrades? <laughs> oh, yes. If you could like spend your points to get fancier cows and to click, and there were limited edition cows, and um, he eventually had to shut the game down, I believe, because it became too successful, and he was, like, kind of embarrassed by it. <laughs> well, that reminds me of, uh, have you played the game Cookie Clicker? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that's another logical extension of this, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where this genre started, but anyway, Cookie Clicker starts out where you click a cookie, 
do you click a cookie and, and you click you get... somewhere and you get a cookie and I you think. get a cookie and then you can spend your cookies on hands that will click the cookies for you <laughs> yeah and before you know it you're getting like a billion cookies a second automatically right and then when you go on forums and talk about the game people discuss your your cpm your cookies per minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah i lost some time on that one too uh anyway Another thing Farmville does from the self-efficacy perspective is the the person there that that's helping you your your friend she's going around helping to fix up things while you're also fixing things and so that shows you someone else who is being successful so that's kind of a vicarious experience as well. Mm-hmm. So, let's talk about a counterpoint because not all games are very easy and not all games give you a nice gentle uh difficulty curve let's talk about dark souls the reputation of this series alone has kept me from ever playing it Uh, so chad tell me about the reputation because i've been in it for a while and i don't know what it looks like from not in it (laughs) so as a i wouldn't call myself a hardcore gamer anymore but as a, a lapsed hardcore gamer perhaps uh, who has never played it, my perception is that it is one of the most difficult games ever created. It is punishingly difficult and just really, 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 really hard, and you'll die a lot, and there's a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> that is little, just about literally everything I know about the series. Yeah, yeah. I like to think of it as uh, Legend of Zelda for adults. So... That same general feeling of going around exploring and finding things behind nooks and crannies and then using those things to go do a go beat a hard boss that you couldn't beat before. That's kind of the same experience with Dark Souls, only it's very, very grim and depressing and gross at times. <laughs> You're really selling it here. Um So the series really started with a PlayStation game in nineteen ninety four called Kingsfield which is actually a first-person dungeon crawler game where you're swinging a a sword. You play a member of a royal family in a kingdom afflicted by the undead and by a curse, which would become a theme for (laughs) the series. And right out of the gate, it was known for its unforgiving difficulty. That series had four entries, and then in 2009, we got Demon Souls for PlayStation 3, and then followed by Dark Souls in 2011, which is where I got into it, and which is where I think the series really started to to take off. And there were three Dark Souls games, as well as a spiritual spinoff called Bloodborne, which we'll talk more about later. But yes, these games are famous for their punishing difficulty. Whenever you die, a a huge message in red letters pops up saying, you died. <laughs> Could you hack it and replace it with the Yoda quote? Um, with what? With the Yoda quote. With Yoda. <laughs> I think so. I think I've I've seen hacks where people change that message to uh to other things that are slightly more hilarious. Yeah, but. And the uh, the games actually usually involve you dying within the first few minutes. So Kingsfield one, you start next to a skeleton who will probably kill you. <laughs> on Kingsfield 2, you start on an island. In one direction, uh, if you walk that way, you will plunge to your death. In the other, you will go to a boss monster who will probably kill you. Oh, delightful. Kingsfield 4, you start next to a lava pit that you will probably walk into by accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I don't know if... I don't think this was the case in the Kingsfield, but the Souls games start to build your first death into the tutorial experience. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you're required to die. Yes, essentially. So in Demon Souls, at the end of the tutorial area, you have to fight a demon who is essentially unbeatable. But if you, if this is like your second or third time through the game and you do manage to beat him, you can uh, teleport out and then you are running up this stone hallway like you're in the, picture like the Mines of Moria, right? Uh Dark, stone, fire. And then you run up to like a ledge and then you see what is essentially a Balrog. And then you get a cutscene of the Balrog punching you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) That's your reward. (laughs) And then you die. Uh, and then in the first Dark Souls, you fight a similar demon in the tutorial area who will smash you with a club the size of a tree unless you run away. You have to, yeah, literally find a door in the back corner of the room and run away instead of trying to fight him. This is starting to sound like a Monty Python sketch gone wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I can, I can see that. Uh, Dark Souls 2 has several large hippo monsters that kill you by sitting on you if you (laughs) get away. And then Dark Souls 3, the the tutorial area, has a large crystal lizard that will roll up into a ball and then roll you over, uh, roll over you. And you're not really supposed to beat it yet, so that's another way to die. And then in Bloodborne, you wake up in a clinic after a blood transfusion, and you have to fight a large wolf with your bare hands who kills you. Well, that seems pretty realistic, honestly. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, if you'd like to learn more about the the background history of, of Dark Souls, a lot of my research on Kingsfield in particular was taken from a book called You Died? The Dark Souls Companion <laughs> by uh, Keza McDonald and the appropriately named Jason Killingsworth. Oh, that's no way that's his real name. <laughs> So I'd recommend it. It's a very insightful look into why such an unforgiving and challenging game can be so beloved by so many people. Uh, I'll try to give my explanation for why I enjoy the experience. So when I started out with Dark Souls, I got used to the the basic game mechanics. So the the core, one of the core mechanics of Dark Souls is when you kill a monster, you get souls. And souls are your currency to level up and buy items and so on. And when you die, all of your souls are lost. But you can get them back if you're able to run all the way back to where you died and find your bloodstain. Mm-hmm. So that kind of creates, a, as soon as you die, a, a incentive to get right back into it and try to get back to that place that you were before. Kind of like a press-your-luck loop experience, right? As you're going down through the dungeon, you can either choose to warp out and save all of the currency you've accumulated, or you can choose to keep on going and risk everything that you've you've gotten so far. No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. Yeah, exactly. Um, another key mechanic of the game is how it restores your health. So in Dark Souls, uh, you have something called an Estus flask. I don't know what the etymology of Estus is. But anyway, you can drink from it ten times when the game starts, and... At the end of those ten times, that's it. You can't refill it. For the whole game? Well, until you die. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So once you die, it gets refilled. But basically, that means you have to ration it out through, you know, whatever whatever journey you're on for that particular life. You can restore it if you rest at what's called a bonfire. And when you rest at a bonfire that refills your Estus, it saves your progress and it resets all the enemies in the the game. <laughs> oh, well that's a bit of a catch. Right, right. 
So basically, you don't want to, you know, rest at a bonfire if you're trying to make progress. You want to make progress until you get to the the next bonfire, and and there's just such a exquisite feeling in the game when you've been like exploring for a half hour and you have thirty five thousand souls and you're down to one Estus flask and you just need to find that bonfire that you know has to be somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to do this all again. And then you accidentally walk into the boss room, and then you then you die. <laughs> oh, that didn't end the way I hoped it would. Yeah, yeah. Anything in the game can kill you if you're not careful. Uh, monsters, even the very easy monsters in the tutorial area, can kill you later on if you're not careful. Uh, arrows, dragons, flaming barrel traps. You learn quickly to always have your your shield up, no matter where you're going, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> So that trained me to work really slowly and methodically through the levels. Um, but I did get to a moment when I first started playing, maybe about three or four hours in, where I got to a boss called the uh, the Capra Demon, which is a large goat monster that carries a, a club. And uh, what happens is you, you know, after a half hour of exploring, you walk into this really narrow room. And what happens when you walk into a room sometimes is you're going through this gate of fog and then the fog clears and you can see the boss so imagine walking through that fog gate and it's like as the fog is clearing there is a boss like charging at you from like 10 feet away and there are there's like an attack dog on either side and the walls are too close for you to really dodge out off to the the side so, not so a lot of options yeah so basically you instantly have to do something or he immediately hits you with his club or axe or whatever and you you die mm -hmm. that was especially hard in my case because my character was a, a long-range wizard who <laughs> could could do nothing up close basically so i got to the boss like i said after a half hour i tried a few times took me another half hour to get back each time and i died again and again after like a, a 10 second learning experience <laughs> mm -hmm. and i decided this game is dumb i hate it it's poorly designed it's awful. It's a waste of time. I'm never coming back to it. And that's it's called rage quitting in the uh, the industry. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I hit that with a game called Explosion Man once. Toward toward the end, it's this dumb little Xbox game that I uh -huh. like. I got to the final boss and lost. I don't know fifty or sixty times in a row. Um, if, if you ever get a chance, ask my wife about the maddest she's ever seen me. That would <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> Have you ever been the type to throw controllers or? That is the closest I've ever gotten. <laughs> it was really, really close. Um, so eventually, though, I did come back to the game because my pride was offended. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I learned a few other key lessons about the game, which is that there's almost always a shortcut you can take or unlock to uh, to get to the boss more quickly. And when you're going back to the boss, you don't have to fight all the enemies. You can just run past them and zigzag in the right way. Oh. <laughs> and really, if you're doing it right, you can get back to the boss in less than a, a minute. That's a significant improvement. Yeah. And then once you accept that the first few times you, you fight a boss, you're going to die, it becomes a lot less frustrating. <laughs> there's, some, there's something zen about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm only half joking when I say that Dark Souls has taught me a lot about, yeah, <laughs> Zen and acceptance. <laughs> There's a book but, to be written in that. Yeah, yeah, Zen and the art of of Dark Souls. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, then I realized my first few tries with the boss should be about learning how not to get hit. <laughs> and just accept that dying is part of the process. <laughs> and then once I learn not how not to get hit, then I can learn like what the trick of the boss is. Usually each boss has a way that you can hit it or something to stun it, or somewhere you can go where you won't get hit. So in this case... In that tiny room with the, the demon, there's a staircase that you can run up, and then you can kind of balance on a ledge that the demon and the dogs can't get to, and then you can just fire down on them from above and, and kill them. Hmm. So you've just got to survive long enough to figure that out. Right, exactly. Um, so then I kept on going with the game. I had I had some other frustrating moments. So, for example... In the intro area, there's a priestess who talks about going down into the uh, the catacombs. And at one point, she disappears, and someone says that he's worried if she'll come back. So I thought, I must have to go down into the catacombs. Logically. Logically. So I spent several hours going through these catacombs because the skeletons there would regenerate after I killed them. <laughs> Problematic, yes. They would come back to life. In the catacombs, you're actually going down through a series of ledges and bridges. So what I ended up doing was, instead of killing them, I would use my very weak kick move, which would bump something back, like, you know, five pixels. And I would painstakingly position the skeletons and kick them off cliffs, one at a time. <laughs> so that so that they couldn't come back. So at the bottom of the cliff, there's just a giant pile of reanimating skeletons. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, although if, if they fell far enough, that would, uh, the game didn't know how to, to deal with that. So <laughs> loophole. Yeah. Eventually I turned off the things that were reanimating them, but I wasn't able to find a shortcut to the boss at the bottom. So each run would take me 10 minutes to get to the boss. Finally beat it, got to a bonfire. And then there was a second part of the catacombs called tomb of the giants, where it was literally pitch black. And you can only see, like, 20 pixels in front of your feet. You can also see the eyes of the giant skeletons right before they slam a machete down on your head. Ouch. Yeah. So I managed to fight through all of that. Um, fortunately, there was a bonfire after the boss, so it saved my progress at that point. But after I fought through all the giant skeletons, I got to this big orange gate, and it said I didn't have the right item to unlock it. No. So I had to go all the way back up <laughs> the oh. catacombs. And since I saved my progress at the bottom, now I had the joy of learning what it was like to fight my way <laughs> in the oh, other Oh, God. Direction. That's devious. It turns out that you're supposed to enchant your weapon with divine magic so the skeletons stay dead after you kill them. And also you can get an item called the Sunlight Maggot, which is a headlamp that will illuminate the darkness. <laughs> I would not have guessed the function from that title. Right, right. Um, so eventually I learned uh, other key things about Dark Souls after I, I persevered through it. Um, I was playing it offline because I didn't want to pay for Xbox Gold or whatever it's called now. But I found out that social learning is, is really key to the experience. So you can write messages for other players to read. And other players will see those messages in the game. And the messages will give you strategies for how to beat a boss. Or it will direct you to where those hidden bonfires are that I could never find. Um, and you can also see the bloodstains of other players. And if you hmm. like click on them, you can see a short uh, 
video clip of how they died, basically. Not that it's nearly as difficult, but Super Mario Maker does something similar with them. You can see where everyone else died in in the level and uh, leave messages for other players. Oh, really? That's real. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, in Dark Souls, you don't see what killed them. You just see like the animations their character went through. Oh, so, that's like, delightful. Yeah, you might see someone just slowly like rise up into the air as if something's <laughs> gripping them by the neck. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> um, and then of course people will leave messages to try to fool you into doing things you shouldn't. Um, the classic one in Dark Souls is a message that says "Try jumping over a bottomless pit." Classic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also learned that upgrading your weapon is the best way to increase damage, which um is contrary to most games where you're just supposed to level up your stats and find better weapons in this game you're just supposed to upgrade your current weapon Hmm. and i personally didn't find a blacksmith until halfway through the game so that was tough (laughs) i apply these lessons after i beat the game to to demon souls and to the other dark souls games and the kind of the same language like, the same game language and strategies apply to them all. Like, I could tell when something was about to, like, jump out jump out at me from behind a corner, right? And there were a few tricky moments, but, you know, after struggling through Dark Souls and getting that performance accomplishment, um, my self-efficacy was, was pretty high after that. So, so here's the, the, here's the conundrum, Chad. Mm-hmm. So, self-efficacy theory exists. Uh, research supports it. But also Dark Souls exists, and (laughs) it's been phenomenally successful. So Dark Souls 3 was released in March 2016, and as of May 16th, Dark Souls 3 had sold 3 million copies, so within the span of a couple months. Wow. Which I think was one of the fastest selling games uh, for Bandai Namco, the publisher. And the entire Souls series as of that date had sold 13 million copies. That's significant yeah that's impressive yeah so this game flies in the face of everything that you know albert bandura Mm -hmm. hypothesized so let's go down the list performance accomplishments well you die right away check (laughs) yeah uh vicarious experiences so the game is filled with dead heroes in fact most of your equipment comes from you looting dead heroes (laughs) so so all these people who are like you are already dead (laughs) Um, you see all these bloodstains of other people who have died, right? Mm-hmm. Of other actual player characters. Uh, check. So, Verbal Persuasion. There's actually a recurring character in the Souls games. Um, he's typically known as the Crestfallen Knight. He's usually sitting around in the hub world, from where you go to the, the different areas of the game. And he'll sit around and mope and just tell you that everyone has failed to end the curse, and you probably will too, and what's the point of even trying? Debbie Downer. And he'll get more and more depressed as the game goes on. Um, So yeah, you have a character in the game literally telling you that no one can do this, and neither can you. Why even try? And then as far as emotional arousal goes, as you're playing the game, you're constantly worried that you're going to lose the thousands of souls you've built up and have to go back and reclaim them. Or, you know, worst case, die along the way and then lose them forever, right? This all seems purposely built to, like, raise your self-confidence in your own death. <laughs> right, your self-efficacy vis-a-vis dying repeatedly yeah. is, is very high. So, I don't know, Chad, do you have any speculation at this point? 
why the games are popular despite the, the contrary theories. No, and this is a question even without knowing the formal background that I had asked myself just based on the reputation of videos that I'd seen. I have no idea. <laughs> so I think we'll have to say that uh, we're going to find out next time. We'll look at uh, some research as well that says that maybe self-efficacy theory is not as simple as it appears. Maybe there's more going on under the hood than was revealed in that 1977 article. You might sell me on a copy of this game yet. I might be 13 million in one. (laughs) Awesome. Well, in the meantime, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hayfley. If you'd like to learn more about self-efficacy, you can find links in the show notes on our website at unlockinggames.com. And also, please come join the discussion on Facebook. A lot of children's programs today are focused on making them feel more confident. Is that always a good thing? Or should they be more like Dark Souls? (laughs) The Saturday morning cartoon version. Yeah, let us know. Until next time, it's your move.